Good morning and welcome to uh, Christ's Community on this beautiful Palm Sunday. And uh, as Pastor Kenny said, yeah, the first service came in on the clouds and uh, you came in on the sunshine. Does that mean sort of you're more enlightened, I think? Um, but we are so glad you're here. And um, again, what a glorious week it is in the church, in our calendar of Holy Week. And uh, we trust that uh, God will be at work in all of our lives. So thank you. I'm Tom Nelson. And again, welcome to the uh, Leewood campus. Well, diversity is a word we uh, hear a lot these days, and I really think in many ways in our contemporary culture, this is a really good thing. And I would suggest to you that there are many reasons why we are increasingly aware of the differences and diversities among uh, people in our globe. For one, we are more globally connected, are we not? Uh, because of this, we are more aware of ethnic differences, of race, of education, of generational differences, of different traditions and values and religions in the world. And I want to suggest that another contributing factor, it seems to me, is that in front of that computer screen we look at all day, we encounter a world, a world where there is great human diversity. And rather than being the focal point of mutual respect and understanding, it is often the object of hatred and oppression and injustice. It seems to me that learning how to live with our many differences is one of our most sizable global challenges. But this is also, I want to suggest to you, true in the church as well. That perhaps it's not just the broader world we live in that is a challenge in all our diversity and differences. Perhaps the greatest challenge closest to us is the differences and diversity in the local church that we love. Now, when we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we come to faith, we are also invited and called into a local church community. And let's be real, transparent, honest this morning. When we walk in this door, we bring a lot of other things with us besides Jesus. We bring, well, a variety of things. We have a diversity of history, Many of us, a diversity of all kinds of different experiences. Uh, we have a diversity of taste, just like in March Madness, certain teams we cheer for. I won't go there. We have a diversity, don't we? We have different cultural perspectives. We have different political perspectives. Different economic perspectives. Various educational backgrounds, economic backgrounds. And yes, spiritual maturity. Isn't it true that behind my Sunday smile and your Sunday smiles often lurk some negative thoughts? Uh, yeah, even in church. I mean, maybe even deep-seated feelings toward others that are sitting near us or we saw come in the door this morning. A certain member or a tender who places on his or her yard a political yard or a sign that says they're a part of a particular party or votes different than we do. Hmm. We may feel put off by another Christian who lives in a particular neighborhood or drives a particular car. We may, we wouldn't do this, but we may even question the spirituality of a brother and sister like that. Brother and sister in Christ who maybe sends their kids to a particular school or homeschools. We may disregard another member that eats meat or 
increasingly higher leaves a larger carbon footprint than we do. It's kind of a big thing these days. Or I hear someone who drives a bigger gas guzzler and doesn't drive a hybrid like you do. I haven't got to the hybrid yet, so keep praying for me. <laughs> or doesn't eat cage-free chicken. It's increasingly common here today. We may feel a sense of disappointment of the way a brother or sister is dressed. Brother and sister in Christ. The tattoo on their skin. Or yes, that ring in their ear or nose or wherever. <laughs> and we may feel here like, wow, smoking a cigar. Having a beer with friends or a glass of wine. That's really cool. Something we enjoy, but we may be here and say, that's not what a Christian should do. Now, it's awfully quiet. It was awfully quiet in the first service, too, when I said that. <laughs> now, let me just be really clear so we don't miss this text this morning. Ready? Paul is not, and we are not, talking this morning about our response or responsibility to a brother and sister in Christ who are clearly violating the clear commands of Holy Scripture. That's not what this text or this sermon's about. What we are talking about are those inevitable differences, diversities, that can actually lead to being emotional barriers between us and foster disunity in a local church. But must our inevitable differences and diversities and perspectives of these secondary matters create emotional distance among us? Must it foster disunity in our mission? Or can our differences and diversity and different perspectives actually be a pathway to a deeper love for one another, a greater maturity in Christ, and a greater unity in the Holy Spirit? This is the exploration the Apostle Paul invites us into this morning in this text. The Apostle Paul explores this question and he challenges us with his answer. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, paper, electronic, or you have it all memorized, maybe some of you do. There's a few Greek texts out there now and then, or just makes my day, I want you to know that. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now let's set the stage. The Corinthians were ethically and culturally and economically and linguistically very diverse. If you study first century history, you know the Judeo sort of uh, culture of the Jews and the Greco-Roman culture was about as far apart as one could imagine, polarizing and difficult. In addition to these vast cultural differences in the church at Corinth, there also were a diversity of spiritual maturities. Good night. And in the early chapters, if you've been a part of our study, we have been walking through this inspired letter to the Corinthians that Paul writes. You'll notice in our discovery that we began in January, Paul has already spent a lot of time pointing out the disunity and divisions and strife in this church. So perhaps this is something all of us need to listen carefully. We could hear of the text that Pastor Kenny read and so meat offered to idols. That has no relevance to me. I'm checking out. But no, 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 no. This text is not only timely, it's timeless to each of us. In these chapters, as Paul builds his argument and his 
thoughts, this trajectory of thoughts. In chapters 1 through 4, if we remember, Paul lovingly confronts the spiritual pride and immaturity of God's people. Chapters 5 and 6, if you recall, he addresses then specific matters of sin that require repentance. But then in chapter 7, he begins to change his thought. His threads of thought begin to emerge around matters of sociological difference. And we looked at one of the thorny differences in the Corinthian church, and that was marital status. Marital status was a biggie. So Paul settles the disunifying dust. He asserts that in Christ we are free to be single or we are free to marry. And we said last week as we looked at what Paul said is what matters most is not our marital status, it is our master status. That when we come to Christ, we enter into a new family. Not a family of our origin, but our family of our destiny in the local church. But as a family, in this already not yet moment of God's redemptive story, we find ourselves, all families live with differences and they wrestle with them. So beginning in chapter 8 now, Paul will spend three chapters, three chapters, it must be a pretty big deal, unpacking this idea of dealing with our differences. So this morning we are going to, first of all, begin in chapter 8 because the threads of thought flow through these three chapters. Now I want you to notice that Paul gives us this morning, in our text as we connect it to these three chapters, three insights that are vital for us to live with our inevitable differences and diversity. I'd like to unpack those as we go through the text. So if you're taking notes and following along sort of the mental scaffolding of Paul's flow, the first one is this, the first insight's this. We can know much, but love little. Go back to chapter eight if you're not there, 1 Corinthians eight. Let's look at verses one through three that sets up the flow of this text. Paul writes, now concerning food offers to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. I want you to notice as thoughtful listeners and observers of the sacred text, that here in chapter 8, verse 1, Paul connects his threads of thought around a literary device. He uses, in the original language, it jumps out at you like a bold epitaph. He uses this little phrase that is translated into English, and you'll notice it periodically through Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Notice the translation, now concerning. Now, if you've been a part of our conversation, you know that mm, I've already heard that before, haven't I? Yes. Paul has already used this literary marker to help us walk through his letter, and we heard it in chapter 7, verse 1. He used this marker and he points to a letter that had been written to him from the Corinthian church dealing with these prickly issues and they want him to step in and talk about it. So here in chapter 8 verse 1, he pulls up this literary marker and he connects us to a prickly issue that they were facing. These, this is another topic they asked Paul about in, his, in their letter to him and he addresses it right up front. So Paul gets right to the point. They've already asked this question. What about eating food that's been offered to idols and buying it in the marketplace? So this was a big issue. Notice he presents us right away in verse 1 with the issue. That is that there was meat sacrificed in pagan temples. And in that culture, what happened? What's the cultural context? Because we have such a long cultural distance and location, we need to connect back into it. 
In that culture, part of the sacrifices, meat was offered to pagan idols, and then it was uh, sold in the marketplace. That was a common practice. It was like wholesale to retail. And so the context here is about going to the market as a Christian and buying meat for dinner. That's the context. Now, all the believers in Corinth and the church knew this, that, that Christians were not to worship idols. That was not the thorny question. The thorny question, if we want to put it in our context, was enjoying Jack Stack's barbecue burnt tent. Because that's what it was like after sacrifice. It was purchased at the deli or the meat market. And the question was, was eating this meat tantamount to worshiping idols? That was the question. And as you can imagine, people answered that question differently. Some Christians at Corinth said, ah, no big deal, it's tasty, it's good stuff. Other Christians said, whoa, no, 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 no. No way. So here we have the rub. Little pun intended there for you barbecue people. Imagine the challenges. Some of you are getting that now. <laughs> Imagine the challenges as Christians ate meals together in the first century where hospitality and eating together was such a high value. So to walk in their sandals. The social awkwardness, to say the least, was intense. Imagine, in our cultural context, that uh, at Christ's community, you uh, invite another church member or a friend that attends Christ's community over to your house for dinner. That's a really good idea, by the way. And let's just say that the friends you invite over are strict vegetarians. And you serve up this awesome steak dinner off the grill. And there's this awkward silence around the table. And you say to them, as good carnivores, as people call me, hey, God made everything for us to enjoy. What about Psalm 24.1? Maybe quote Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10. The earth is the Lord and everything in it. Now, I doubt if you're a Christian guest, would want to come back for dinner again, let alone be in your community group. Do you see the awkwardness of it? <laughs> this is what's going on here. In verses 1 through 3, if you follow along and continue on to verses 4 through 6, Paul seems to be, at the first blush, siding with the Christians, at, uh, believers at Corinthians, who enjoyed eating meat, who liked their tasty burn ends, that had been offered to idols before being sold to the market. Paul says, notice, if you look, God created it, and in chapter 10, he'll highlight Psalm 24, one, he'll quote it, the earth of the Lord's everything in it. And he says, we know there's one God, and we worship him, God the Father, Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, he says, man-made idols of wood or metal are really nothing. The idol Paul is concerned about is the prideful idol of the heart. That's the thing to watch out for. And spiritual bride, whoa can be a big blind spot on all our lives. Now, I've heard that I often uh, use illustrations about my road rage. I didn't have road rage this week, but I did have another issue. <laughs> Some of you are newer, just trust me. I, people think I have road rage every day. But I was reminded this week of blind spots. Because blind spots you never outgrow, you just have to increasingly be aware of them. I was, 
out of town and dropped into the airport, grabbed my car, and made my way home. It was rush hour, busy, and I had this experience coming on I-29 down from the airport to down south. Someone was doing the unimaginable in front of me. They were going 55 in a 65-mile-an-hour zone. <laughs> Man, that bugs me, so don't do that. <laughs> you have no right to mess me up. Anyway, so I'm like, I'm getting home, right? So I... What? I look like this real quick, turn into the, start turning the lane, and what happens? <coughs> Some irritating driver beeps his horn at me. Well, thankfully, he did. Because otherwise, we would have wrecked. Because there was a blind sight right spot right there I could not see. And here's what Paul is doing. Paul is pointing out with a big pastoral beep, beep horn. You got a blind spot here. Blind spots are not only dangerous on the road, they're dangerous in the church. Paul is particularly alerting those of us who have been Christians for a while. And notice the text. It's people who have knowledge, who maybe have a lot of knowledge of the Bible, who, who because of their growing maturity, understand the freedom they have in Christ in so many areas, yet they can be condescending and sensitive and prideful to their brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice how Paul pops the bubble of their prideful know-it-allness. So here in verse 2, basically Paul says, hey, you know, you really think you're smart? Compare yourself to God. You really don't know much. And Eugene Peterson brilliantly paraphrases the Greek text, as he often does. He says this. This is how he paraphrases it. Sometimes our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds. And then he says, we never really know enough until we recognize that God alone knows it all. Paul contrasts knowledge and love. Notice he says, knowledge can puff up with pride, but love builds up or edifies or makes somebody whole. Now, hear this very carefully. This text, like many texts, are so often misinterpreted and preached so wrong. Paul is not advocating in this text anti-intellectualism, nor... Is he diminishing knowledge? What Paul is doing, he's not lowering the importance of knowledge. He's raising the bar of love. There's a difference. We often hear people say, and I've said it, especially to my kids when they were younger, it's better to be kind than right. But Paul is saying here, church, it's better to be both. And being right ought to make us kind, not insensitive, prideful people. Because Paul knows, and you and I know in our hearts, that left unchecked, spiritual pride not only damages our heart, it damages others, and it sabotages unity in the body of Christ. So Paul is saying, first insight, blind spot, watch. We can know much but love little. But notice the second one, second insight. We can be right, but get it so wrong. This is a blind spot we all have to watch. In verses 7 through 12, Paul presses more into the matter of eating off, uh, meat offered to idols, and he makes the point, notice that Corinthians have freedom to eat this meat, but their freedom can go south. In other words, their rights can become wrongs. And our freedom in Christ can become sin if we don't steward it well. 
Paul, notice, he frames the structural architecture of this text around two different kinds of people, you'll notice. He highlights those who have a, what we would say in English, a weaker conscience and those who have a stronger conscience. I don't really love these words. We don't have a good way to really translate this well. You might say it's someone who's a little more clear and someone more delicate. It's not a value statement of their value. Please understand that. And the word conscience, as we trace it through classical literature and the New Testament, is really hard to know exactly what Paul is saying. It can really have two main meanings in its usage. First, it can be conscience can tie to sort of a moral, let's just use the language of red light, green light, yellow light, and some moral decision we have to make that guides us. But it also is uh, used to, to describe self-awareness. Or we might say a lack of self-awareness or emotional intelligence. Perhaps Paul is bringing both streams of thought together here. His point is, so the person with a weaker conscience in the matter of eating food offered to idols, Paul implicitly, not explicitly, implicitly in the language, encourages the weaker conscience to grow up in knowledge. But to the person with a stronger conscience, whose spiritual knowledge is more clear, Paul explicitly says, Grow up in love. And he says, growing up in love may well mean that a brother or sister of a stronger conscience joyfully gives up their rights for love of a brother or sister just like that. What Paul is saying is a very important truth that all of us in the church should grasp. And that is, the church should be a place where it's okay to disagree on many things, secondary matters, as I framed in the beginning of this message, or preferences. A place where it's okay to have different perspectives and preferences. But that means wisdom and love must navigate all our lives in the power of the Spirit. Paul is saying, Christians in Corinth, Christians, if you find yourself in a social context and your actions, your actions will cause a fellow brother or sister in Christ to stumble, and what he means, listen carefully, is that that is to be socially forced into a situation in which they are uncomfortable, then Paul says, think love first, not freedom. Think love first, not freedom. See, the danger of the stronger brother or sister is that we often charge ahead enjoying our freedom like a bull in a china closet. While the weaker brother or tender conscience or however you want to say it, or sister, often frets and freezes up in the moment. And Paul is saying both the stronger and the weaker can be unloving to others. The stronger is in danger of prideful insensitivity. And the weaker is in danger of a kind of petty pridefulness. See, both as brothers and sisters in Christ and the church can start pointing fingers at each other rather than following Christ and loving one another. And Paul, I think it's very, I think Paul is kind of tired of getting letters from the Corinthians. My, uh, that's my hunch. And what he's saying is, hey, you don't need an apostolic referee like me on these things. I just think, stop writing to me this stuff. That's what I think he said. That's just my own speculation. <laughs> You need to remember a primary wise navigational principle. And that is this. Personal freedom gives the right of way to brotherly or sisterly love when they encounter each other in the intersection of a social situation. I was uh, reminded this week of the importance of giving people the right of way. <laughs> I, I, I hate red lights and... Um, but I don't have red lights on my way to, to my office at Leewood here. 
it's kind of a neat thing, but I have two four-way stops signs. Now, you all know what that's like driving. It's no big deal. I love four-way stops. I have to wait for a while. I just zip right through, right? But, but when someone else, especially in a busy time of day, usually it's in the morning, comes and both of the cars meet together at the same time, what do you do? Right? If you're like me, you start like that, and then you stop because you don't know if they're going to go, right? They stop. It's just, you sit, you're frozen. Like, do I go? Do I stop? Because both have competing stewardships at that intersection. And if you've not read uh, your driver's license manual lately, or if you've just taken your driver's license students, you know there's a rule for that. Nobody ever follows it that I ever see. <laughs> That's all their story. But the idea is when you come to the intersection, two cars at the same time, who gets the right of way? The driver on the right. And this is what Paul is saying. When a brother or sister arrive at the same social intersection and they have different preferences or perspectives, the rule for the road is that love always has the right of way. What Paul is saying is personal freedom always bends its knee to love. If that doesn't happen, a big wreck is going to occur at that intersection of social life. Look at Paul's strong words. Paul raises the tone of rhetoric to a very high pitch in verses 11 and 13. Let me read them. He says, And by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ has died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Jesus, against Christ. And he says in the strongest way, therefore if food makes my brother stumble, I'm never going to eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul wants us to grab it in our hearts here, especially a brother or sister of a stronger conscience, that our freedom in Christ can actually morph into sin both against the brother or sister and ultimately against Christ himself, the one who created that image bearer and the one who died and shed his precious blood on the cross for that person, that brother or sister. Freedom is often not what we think it is. The biblical understanding of freedom is this. People often understand freedom is doing anything you want whenever you want to do it. But that's not a biblical understanding of freedom. Freedom, properly understood, is not about doing anything we want when we want. It is the commitment and empowerment to do what God wants every moment of our day when we work and serve him. Paul is not speaking here, let me just very clear again because there's so much confusion around this text about a weaker brother or sister's self-absorbed pettiness. He is talking about a stronger brother or sister who in a social setting is making another brother or sister in Christ feel like they have to participate in something they don't agree with or don't want to do. That's what this text is talking about. Don't forget that Paul says, this brother or sister is one for whom Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice. In fact, in his letter to Romans, he tells a whole chapter on this subject in Romans chapter 14. You can look at this this week if you want to look more. 
But in verse 20, Paul says this in Romans 14. He says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Wow. Freedom bows its knee to love. Paul wants the weak conscience and the strong conscience to grow up, but in different ways. To the weak, he says, grow up in knowledge and freedom in Christ. Grow up. And to the strong, he says, grow up in love. So Paul gives us three very important insights for navigating personal preference and differences in the church. The first one he gives us, we have to hold on to. We can know much but love little. The second one is we can be right but get it wrong. But notice how he moves to the end of these three chapters to build to this conclusion. We can grow in love and wisdom and we must. Look at chapter 10, verses 23 through 24. Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. That means, again, helps another person become whole and healthy and flourish. That's what that means. Let no one seek his own good, but notice, but the good of his neighbor. Paul reemphasizes throughout this three-chapter section, and he emphasizes it again, that freedom in Christ that the gospel brings to our life is awesome. Let's not forget who Paul was before he, on that dusty road to Damascus, encountered the risen Christ and was knocked off his horse. I love that part. Paul, whose soul and mind were suffocated in religious legalism, was set free in Jesus Christ. And Paul must have repeatedly danced jigs of his freedom in Christ after being under such bondage of legalism. But I don't see Paul any time saying his personal freedom wasn't eager and willing to joyfully bend its knee to Christ-like loves for someone else. Paul never flaunted his freedom. He cherished it, but he never flaunted it. And he says, your freedom in Christ must be used to not tear any brother or sister down, but to build them up in love. And notice in verse 24, notice where Paul goes. He moves from within the church to the world. Notice in verse 24, it's not just Paul is talking about living with our differences in the church, that's his main priority, but it's also living, living with our differences in the broader world. Do you notice what he says? He says, let no one seek his own good, but notice he changed from brotherly love, sisterly love, to neighborly love, but for the good of his neighbor. Do you see that? He's saying love and wisdom are not only needed in our church family, they are, but in all dimensions of your daily life and mine, at school with my classmates, with my friends, with our neighbors, with our colleagues at work, love and wisdom call us not to distance ourselves from our culture or circle the wagons in any kind of cultural ghetto, but to seek the good of others in our broader cultural context. This is one of the strongest statements of Paul about seeking the common good and common grace in all of the New Testament. And we need to be aware of what he's saying. Paul's words reflect Jesus' words that you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, are to be faithfully present and proximate in our culture, to be salt and light in our world. His words echo, and the structure of the words echo with the prophet Jeremiah. In the Old Testament, he urged God's covenant people who were in pagan Babylon to seek the well-being of the Babylonians, to seek shalom, their goodness, the common good. Paul will remind the Galatian Christians, we often miss this when he writes, he says this, do good to all, do good to all, and especially the household of faith, that's the church. Observe here in verses 25 through 31, Paul again affirms Christian freedom in social settings. Do you see that? 
But now he shines his literary lens specifically on the unbeliever. Do you see that emphasis? Paul is saying, be wise and loving with your freedom. The world around us is watching us. And he will point out in verse 32 the importance of love and wisdom and giving no offense. Notice where he goes in our social life, in work settings, to a very culturally diverse first century world, a world of Jews and Greeks. You notice how he says that? And he says, you and I need love and wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit to approach humbly others that we work with, that we go to school with, that we play with in our neighborhoods to seek to understand and love them. When our kids grew up in the house we first lived in, we moved to Kansas City, we had amazing neighbors. And some of the most amazing neighbors moved in right next to us and they grew up in Egypt. They were both brilliant physicians and they were both devout Muslims. Amazing people and dear friends to this day. They practiced their faith with high devotion. They were gracious to us in navigating our cultural differences. All of us had to wrestle with that and they often send us Christmas cards they still do. And I'm sure at times we were insensitive to them. In many ways, we learned a great deal about their tradition, their faith. And since Liz had lived in the Middle East and I had lived and studied in the Middle East, we had some understanding of the cultural context, particularly during the month of Ramadan. Ramadan for a Muslim is a very high and holy month where from sunrise to sunset they fast. Now can you imagine us during the month inviting them over for lunch? And how they would have had such a difficulty with that. Many of us do the same thing. Many of us out of ignorance or indifference or simply we're blind and insensitive to the values and feeling of very diverse people around us that God has specifically brought in our life to love. How are you navigating the differences with your neighbors, dear friends? Your classmates. How about that person in the cubicle or the office next to you? Do they know you're a follower of Jesus? Even though they may be very different, they may be a person of unbelief or atheism or another belief or another tradition, do you sincerely love them from the heart as image bearers of God? What words would they use to describe you if I knocked on your office door and asked them? If I asked them about you, would they say you're kind, thoughtful, generous? Or would they say words like strident or angry or self-righteous? See, like with a brother or sister in Christ, we can have some big blind spots here, can't we? I believe we all need to grasp the importance of honoring God in our work. Our workplace, whether you are paid or not paid, is the primary place where you worship God every day, the primary place where you are spiritually formed, it's the place where you serve your neighbor, and it's the place where your life and words are a witness of the gospel to the world. And in our workplaces, we can know much about the Bible. We can even have a Bible verse pasted up on our computer, which I think is a good thing, don't get me wrong. But we can love our fellow workers little. We can be so right in our faith and so wrong with them and with others around us. We are called to lifestyles of love, wisdom, and sensitivity because people around us see the world different often than we do and have very different backgrounds. Notice how Paul ends this whole section. We're gonna unpack more in messages ahead in these three chapters, but notice how he ends it because this is all tied together Verse 31 through 11, well, let me reread that. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. See how he lists all those? Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Now, don't take that out of context. He's not talking about sin. I do not seek my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved, that they may come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. As apprentices of Jesus, friends, if you have embraced the gospel, you and I are called to live before an audience of one 24-7 in a devotional life of worship. And if we get that setting right in our compass of our life, we can navigate any difference and differences of preference, preference and diversity in the church or in the world. And we can navigate in the church in a way that enriches your life and mine, unites us in heart and mind and mission. Paul's heart here is that in the midst of our messiness of our differences, the truth of the gospel will be proclaimed, will be incarnated and seen, and be heard by our friends at school, at work, and in our city, and many will come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's his heart. So are we living well with our differences? Let me raise three questions. You can write them down if you want as you think about them this week. First, are we listening well? The New Testament writer James says, be quick to speak, right? No, be quick to listen. Slow to speak and slow to anger. Of course, there's a place to speak up when we need to speak up. But we are called not only to be bold with the gospel, we are called to be loving with the gospel too to embody lives like Christ and being both filled to the full with truth and grace. And one of the greatest ways we can communicate love to others is to truly listen to them, not only their words, but their heart. What do they long for? What are they struggling for? What's on their mind and heart? What are they feeling? And how does the greatest lover of their soul connect to that need? Because all of us need Jesus ultimately more than anything else. We just don't know where that is. Are we listening to others well? With mind and heart, even when they're very different than us. Secondly, are we learning well from others? Paul highlights the stronger and weaker brother. And all of us are stronger and weaker in many areas, aren't we? A stronger and weaker brother or sister, we have much to learn from each other. And let me say this very clearly, hear me carefully. And the common grace that the Bible teaches that Paul stamps right here on our hearts tells us that everyone gets part of the story right. And that means we can learn not only from a brother or sister in Christ, but also other image bearers, again with discernment, who do not profess faith in Jesus Christ yet. Third, are we loving well? Are we loving well? Paul will really build on this. You know, if you've read 1 Corinthians, the, perhaps the greatest love poem ever written in 1 Corinthians 13 by a human hand. But he will say at the very end of this letter, a bottom line reminder in chapter 16, verse 14. Do not miss this. This is written over the whole letter when he says, let all you do, all you do, be done in love. In our homes, in our workplaces, at school, in our recreation, may true Christian love be the signature mark of whose apprentices we truly are. A love, think of this, a love that can know much and still love much. A love that can be right and still be kind. A love that is free but still willing to give up that freedom like that. A love that sacrifices for the good of others. A love that embraces the differences and unites us in our diversity. It is Palm Sunday. And as we prepare our hearts for Holy Week, 
Let's remember the unity of the spirit we are called to embrace and nurture. Let's remember Paul's words to us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 11, that point us to the love of Christ and his atoning death for us. Philippians chapter 2, Paul speaks of the unity of the spirit. In a church, when our freedom in Christ always bends its knee to love, and he looks to Jesus' example, who, being in the form of God, being equal with God, did not regard equality a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself and became a servant and died on a cross for you and me. He gave up his freedom for love. And in our weakness, in our brokenness, in our loneliness, confusion, fear, and shame, Jesus died for you and me. That we might be forgiven. That we might be given new life. And that we might be brought into the family of God, a family with a glorious destiny in the new heavens and new earth. May the differences, preferences, perspectives, that we inevitably bring into the church, not divide us, but may they unite us in truth, love, and wisdom. Let's pray. Love to have your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Take a moment in the quietness of the moment and be still before God and ask the Spirit of God to speak in how he, the Spirit of God, would have you respond. Let's be still before the Lord. Holy Spirit, in the midst of so much clutter, so much noise, so much self-absorption in our world, speak into every nook and cranny of our life. Probe the deepest crevasses of our attitudes and bring transformation to our hearts that we may love as you call us to love, not only our brother and sister in Christ that's different, but our neighbor who's very different. May we be the church that arises with your grace and truth. Amen.